I invite you now to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 16. Genesis chapter 16, as we advance to the time where we consider the preached Word of God. Genesis chapter 16, here today. I know that you just sang a song where you asked God to enable your soul to be still. But I would like to go to him now in prayer and ask him to do that for us and ask him to eliminate the distractions that would prevent us from hearing from him and his word today. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for the privilege of gathering and for the privilege of hearing your word. I pray, Lord, that you would be honored and exalted uh, in the preaching today. I pray that you would eliminate distractions. And Lord, may you enable our hearts to be soft, fertile, fertile soil to hear the word. May our impulse be to follow what this scripture says today. Once again, we're amazed that through exposition, through word after word from scripture, story after story, you have ancient text with modern application to our hearts. So we're thankful for your word and would pray that you would uh, give us the grace to believe it today. In Jesus' name, amen. As you look at Genesis chapter 16, we continue our story of Abram, and uh, we're in this long section in the middle of Genesis, one of the largest sections in Genesis about Abram and what God has for him in his story. And in chapter 16, we have the first part of a little subset of Abram's story I call the Ishmael story. Ishmael's story will be here and then in one other place later on in the book of Genesis. But the story of Ishmael is a story that has three main characters. Abram, Sarai, and Hagar. And what we're going to find out about each one of these characters is that they clash with each other. They're each trying to engineer their own fleshly fulfillment of God's promise for a son for Abram that he had given in Genesis chapter 12. As we come to Genesis chapter 16, I just need to prepare you a bit. This is a profoundly sad story. This is a tale of selfishness, passivity, abuse, and blame shifting. It's a dark story full of sin, but near the end it gets better and brighter. And so we're going to work our way through the story, and we have to get the whole way through the story until the end, until we see some resolution, grace, and mercy. As I think of Genesis chapter 16, I divide it into two sections. This might be helpful for you as you try to remember this text in the future. There are two main scenes, okay? The first scene I call Sarah's sinister scheme, okay? I had to practice saying that. It's actually Sarai's sinister scheme, verses 1 through 6. And then in verses 7 through 16, we will learn of God's gracious goodness, Okay, see what I'm doing there? I'm not good at alliteration. That's my best try. Sarah's sinister scheme, verses 1 through 6, God's gracious goodness, verses 7 through 16. So we start with Sarah's scheme. 
until this part in the story of Abram, we have followed Abram and Sarai as they move around after receiving God's promises in Genesis 12. At this point in Genesis 16, it's been 10 years or so since they had received those promises. And the delay of the fulfillment of the promise for a son has, by this point in the story, it's worn the couple down, especially Sarai. So in verses 1 through 6, Sarai conceives of a sinister plan to bring about the fulfillment of the promise of God on her own terms. I want you to look with me in your Bible at verses 1 through 4 to see the manifestation of Sarah's scheme. Verse 1 says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, verse 4, and she conceived. We'll stop there. In this part of the story, we begin to see the worst in two of our characters, Sarai and Abram. We'll start with Sarai. Sarai is struggling with her own infertility, probably compounded in humiliation because of the cultural values and expectations placed upon her as a woman and a wife. So, she starts in this text by putting the blame on God at the beginning of her conversation. She says, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Now, I think the idea that it is God who gives or denies conception is a commonplace idea in both the Old and New Testament scriptures. That, that is valid and true. God is in control of all things, this, this as well. And so her words do reflect her view that God controls all things, but it also seems true that she is frustrated by her barrenness and blames God. But then in her struggle, she puts forward a solution that is a culturally acceptable solution to her barrenness. She suggests that her Egyptian maidservant Hagar be given to Abram as a surrogate wife to produce children for her. One commentator, Old Testament commentator, describes this well. He said, according to long-established custom in the ancient Near East, a child born to Hagar would then count as Sarai's. So according to that tradition, any child born to Hagar could technically count as a child of Sarai. This is her way to fulfill the promise that God has given to them. But it's interesting to me, as you look at this text, there's some things going on that if you're an alert reader, you will pick up and you will see that Moses is portraying this in a way where he's not endorsing what she's saying. Okay, I want to suggest something to you. I want you to think about it. I want you to compare with other scripture this week. Okay. I believe what Moses does in telling the story of Sarai is he gives or makes 
a deliberate echo of the sin that took place in the garden in the original fall. Okay, so this week you can look up this passage, Genesis 3 and verse 6. And in Genesis 3 and verse 6, if you remember this part of the story with the fruit in the garden, it says that Eve took of the fruit and gave. Right? Two actions there. She took and gave. Okay, in Genesis chapter 16, our text, verse 3, Moses portrays Sarai's action with the same two verbs. Sarai took Hagar and gave her to her husband as a wife. This parallel is Moses' way of indicating God's disapproval of Sarai's plot. She is repeating the sin of Eden because she too doubts the word from the Lord. You remember in the garden? The serpent comes to Eve and he causes her to question what God said. Has God said? You remember this? She questions the integrity of the words of God. So too here, Sarah and her actions. Uh, it, she's not prompted by faith. Instead, her actions spring forward from a lack of trust in what God has said to her, promised to her. Now, before we leave Sarah's actions, however, in this text, we must also point out that her sin and her self-centeredness results in her victimizing Hagar. Although this might be culturally permissible in the ancient Near East, she should have known better. This breaks God's original design, given in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24. Again, you could go back and read that this week, where it talks about God giving one man to one woman so that they would become one flesh. That's God's ideals when it comes to marriage. She breaks this. Notice, for instance, in our text, how awkwardly her solution reads at the end of verse 3. Look at the end of verse 3. The last phrase. And gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. What in the world was she thinking? Not only does that read awkwardly, it produces great depths of strife and anguish to everyone involved in this narrative. And so for generations... Or actually, millenniums following, the fruit of this decision will bring anguish to the children of Abram, the Israelites, as they interact with the children of Ishmael, the Ishmaelites. So this decision, I think, also treats Hagar with no personal rights. Hagar is a tool to relieve Sarah's embarrassment. So, so instead of Hagar's father giving her away in marriage to a single man, Sarai gives her away in marriage to her own husband. Sarai should have known better. But Abram himself is sinful in this passage as well, the first part of the story, just even the first four verses. Again, the language here repeats the language of the sin in the garden. Not only did Sarah take and give, like Eve, the text says that Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. And that verb is the same as how Adam responded in the garden. Adam hearkened to, listened to the voice of Eve regarding the fruit. And, 
So Abram hearkens to, listens to the voice of Sarah without putting up any objection. Instead of just listening to her voice, Abram should have done something different. He should have said something like this. No, we will not do that. I will not do this. We will wait for God to fulfill his word to us. Perhaps Abram should have responded something like this. No, let's call on the name of the Lord. Let's build an altar and go to God and ask him for grace to persevere in our belief and faith that he will provide for us a son. That is not what he does. Instead, he fails. And whether this failure springs forth from Abraham out of his own frustration or lack of faith or lust or whatever it is, he fails to take the proper role of leadership in the home. Stand up and lead his wife and say, that solution is one we're not going to do that. No, he hearkens to her voice and he commits the sin that wicked Pharaoh tried to commit before with his wife and Sarai in Egypt. He takes Hagar into his house to, con- to conceive children with her. This is a terrible plan. This is a sinister plan. This is not good. It's not right. It is sinful. But the effects of Sarah's scheme in the middle of verse 4 through verse 6 make this story even darker. So look at the middle of verse 4, and let's go down through verse 6. It says in the middle of verse 4, And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, profound words here from Abram, right? Verse 6. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. In this part of the story, this part of the narrative, everyone sins. Everyone. That's my personal opinion as I look at this text and try to interpret it clearly. Everyone sins in this part of the text. Let me show you. First, we start with Hagar. Moses explains that Hagar, on two occasions, Moses says this, uh, that she looked on contempt at her mistress, Sarai. So in uh, the uh, verse 4 there, the middle of the verse, when she saw that she had conceived, she, that's Hagar, looked with contempt on her mistress, Sarai. Now, there are different ways to take Hagar's action here. However we take it, though, it's true. This is what she did, because not only is this found in Sarah's recollection of it, her interpretation in verse verse, uh, uh, 5, it's also true in what Moses himself says, his inspired insight in the end of verse 4. Moses also says she looked with contempt on her mistress. So in other words, this is not simply that Sarai misreads Hagar. She did this. Okay, now, we might think that Hagar looks with contempt on Sarai because Hagar's bitter. I mean, treated like a pawn in this scenario. She's bitter for how she's been abused. Instead, I think there's a a better way to take this. 
it seems on the basis on how this word is commonly used in the Old Testament, that Hagar's contemptuous look at Sarah comes forth out of pride, arrogance, not bitterness. So I agree with how one scholar puts it. He says it this way. His name's Victor Hamilton. He says, Hagar becomes pompous toward Sarai. In actuality, Hagar is taking pride in her pregnancy. Sarah is now the non-producing, uh, non-child-producing wife, and Hagar is the child-producing wife. So men and women, I believe it appears that Hagar is proudful here in this part of the text. But of course, she's not the only sinner in verses 4 through 6, and so we, we return to Sarai again, and we consider her role. Here, we can learn about Sarah's role again in verse 5. So look down there in your Bible again. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. When she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. Here, Sarah's failures continue. Here, she fails to admit the blame. And she shifts the blame to Abram. Now, Abram does deserve blame, but so does Sarai. And so in her response... Uh, she blames Abram. She's overwhelmed by her own barrenness. And I think the thought of Abram and Hagar's embrace, so she asked God to judge between her and her husband. This is a profound request here. Think of the significance of this request. It's like a prayer wish to God. May the Lord judge between you, Abram, and me. She wants God to come down and to separate them and issue judgment against one of them. According to Genesis chapter 2, they are to be close. They are to be of one flesh. They are to be inseparable. But this human, contrived, fleshly solution brought on terrible marital strife between Abram and Sarai. What devastating effects she calls God to judge her husband, Abram. But that's when we consider the sinful failure of Abram again. I think he fails again in verse 6a. So look in your Bible at verse 6 again. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. I would write the word failure over that phrase again. Abram's sin continues when he attempts to appease Sarai by suggesting that she can do with Hagar whatever she wants. Again, Abram shows his self-centeredness, and in this passage, he fails his second wife, too. He's already fa failed Sarah repeatedly in the narratives from Genesis 12 to this point, but now he fails his second wife, Hagar. Abram is uh, in this text, fails to offer Hagar the protection that she deserves as his wife. Abram is passive here and is pacifying. Uh, instead of leading his family to a solution to deal with this problem, he tells Sarah, do whatever you want. Men and women, as I come to this twisted tale in Scripture, one of the things that really struck me this week is the Bible's telling the truth about these people and what they did not a glamorous or glorious story over and over again these people these characters they act in unbelief and self-centered ways time and time again 
And so Abram is lacking in leadership in this text. And that empowers Sarah to deal harshly, the text says, to deal harshly with Hagar. As I came to this point in the text, I was wondering, you know, what does it mean that she dealt harshly with her? Well, we don't know for certain. We don't know exactly what it means. She at least produces some sort of despair in Hagar, but probably is oppressing her and is heavy, using heavy hands to subjugate her. Regardless, her action here is wrong and it produces fear in Hagar, so Hagar flees. Verses 1 through 6 describe Sarai's sinister scheme, and its results are devastating. Before we go to the second half of the narrative, I just want to take a moment, I want to make an application for us as New Testament, New Covenant followers of Jesus Christ. One of the things I'd point out for you in verses 1 through 6, I think all of these sins spring forth originally from an unwillingness to trust God and to wait for him to fulfill his word to us. You get that? So if our root, a source problem in all of these sins that we've read, they all spring forward from an unwillingness to trust God and to wait for him to work. May we refuse, men and women, may we refuse to follow the examples of these people who fail to trust God in his word, who take matters into their own hands. Instead, may we learn to face our trials and temptations like the great proponent of the new covenant did, Jesus. You remember Jesus when he was tempted in Matthew chapter 4 by Satan? Satan takes him out in the wilderness, and Jesus hasn't eaten for much uh, and a long time, and Satan tempts him in his trial, in his distress, and Jesus said this. He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In that text, men and women, Jesus is showing us the value and the necessity of trusting God to take care of us and to fulfill what he says that he would do for us. And so as we look at Sarah's sinister plot, I, I say we, we can't leave without thinking, but we need to learn to trust God and his word and to follow it and commit to it. But I want to deal with the second half of this story, verses 7 through 16, and see God's gracious goodness with you. Here the twisted dark story turns brighter. And Moses, I think, arranges this last scene around two conversations. The conversations are between two characters. There's a new character in the story. The new character is the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord has ongoing conversations with Hagar. Okay, and so there's two conversations. And so we'll look at the first conversation together. We'll start uh, in verse 7. Look at your Bible at verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her, that's Hagar, by a spring of water in the wilderness. The spring was on the way to Shur. And he said, the angel of the Lord said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing for my mistress, Sarai. Now before we leave this first conversation, there are two things I want to point out to you. First of all, I want to deal just very briefly with who this figure is. Who is the angel of the Lord? 
know, we could take a lot of time to go through all sorts of different Old Testament texts. I think that the phrase angel of the Lord is used 58 times in the Old Testament. So we could take time to go through all of those. We don't have the time to do that today. But I'll just look at this narrative, figure out, to try to figure out who is the angel of the Lord? Who is he in this passage? Now, I would start by simply suggesting that the word angel is a flexible word that could describe any messenger from God, whether it was an angelic being or whether it is the pre-incarnate Son of God. I think it's best to see the angel of the Lord here as a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God. There are a few things that point me that way, but one of the things in this text is the actual language that is used here seems to demonstrate that this angel, this representative of God, is also God himself. And I'll try to point these to you just very briefly. Look in verse 10. You see this promise from the angel of the Lord. He says, uh, the promise comes, I will surely multiply your, you. Okay, that promise is just like the promise Abram receives in Genesis chapter 12. I will multiply you. Here, the angel of the Lord, the messenger from God, is the one giving the promise. Just like God gave the promise to Abram in Genesis 12. Like, this is God's promise to give. And here this messenger, whoever he is, says it the same way. He doesn't say, God will multiply your seed. He says, I will do it. That helps us to think perhaps the angel of the Lord is God. And then later on in verse 13, a little bit later on, when Sarai, or, uh, Hagar is attempting to name the place where she's at, she names it this, truly here I have seen the one who's seen me. In this text, the person who's seen Hagar is the angel of the Lord. And she describes it this way, I've seen the one who sees me. She says, I've seen God, the one who sees me. I, I think the angel of the Lord here is a pre-incarnate son of God, the second member of the deity. I think he comes to meet with Hagar. And he meets with Hagar in the wilderness when she is in a desperate spot. She is now a desperate and a vulnerable woman. And so when confronted by God's messenger in this text, she does not even know where she's going. At least she doesn't talk about this. Remember, the angel of the Lord asked her two questions. Where are you coming from and where are you going? And her answer is simply, I'm fleeing from Sarai. And so the silence in this text is about her future. You see, she's quite vulnerable. She's out in the desert. She's in the wilderness. And she doesn't know where she's going. But even if Abram, her husband, will not protect and provide for her, God will. The angel of the Lord, second person, the deity, meets with her, and he's going to help her. This is when God's goodness and grace surprisingly appear in the narrative in verse 9, in the second conversation between the angel of the Lord and Sarai. Let's start with what the angel says. Look at your Bible at verse 9. It says, the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He, will be, uh, uh, he shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over all his kinsmen. Okay, so at this point in the text, as we, we hear just what the angel of the Lord says before we think about what Hagar responds, 
I want you to notice that in the first part of verses 9, 10, and 11, uh, you have the same phrase over and over again. And the angel of the Lord said, verse 9 and verse 10. And the angel of the Lord said, verse 11, but the angel of the Lord said. Three times. What the angel says comes in three waves here. He starts with giving her two, what I would call, perplexing commands. Okay, so as I'm reading this with all my modern sensibilities, and I think about the plight of Hagar, I think about what she's gone through and how she's been treated by Abram and Sarai, and now she's out in the desert by a well. The angel of the Lord, the second person of the, de- of the Godhead, comes to her and says, return and submit. And I came to those two commands, and I'm like, what in the world? I don't know if you responded like that to the text. What is God doing here? Why would he tell her, in light of what she's been through, why would he tell her to go back? Now, unfortunately, the text doesn't answer that question for us directly. Believe me, I've looked. If you can find it, let me know. But as I look at the text and I consider this question, I I think it's likely, it may be, that the angel of the Lord knows that this situation for Hagar is not sustainable. She's not going to make it. She's going to die out in the desert by herself. And combine that with the idea that what he quickly then does after these two commands is he he adds to these commands a promise of blessing. Okay, So the way the text goes is return and submit. Go back to Abram. Return and submit. and, And I will multiply your offspring. He gives this promise of blessing. Before this promise out in the wilderness, Hagar did not know what she would do. I don't know if she knew if she would make it, but God says that she should return and then guarantees a future for her and her unborn baby with language that rivals or is like the promise that God gave to Abram in Genesis chapter 12. So the way I see this part of the text here is God is giving Hagar reassurance that he will protect her and provide for her even if her husband Abram will not. And his promises come with some final explanations in verses 11 and 12. Here the, the messenger explains that Hagar is indeed carrying a son and that she should call his name Ishmael. The name Ishmael means the God who hears. And so it's a symbolic and a significant name. God has heard her cries in affliction in the wilderness. And how comforting should it be for us to know that when we are oppressed or are in affliction, God hears. It is not outside of his notice. He's aware. He's keeping track. I've always just dumbfounded by this concept of all the billions and billions of people, trillions of people in this world, God is not only universal in his knowledge, overall, he's also local. He's individual. He knows me. He knows you. I see multitude of faces across the field today, but God knows each one of you. He knows what's going on in your life. He knows your concerns. He knows the anguish that you bear. He hears it. He hears your cries and your affliction. What a comfort to us. And then Hagar learns that Ishmael will be quite the son in the text, right? He's going to be wild and unruly 
and who will oppose many even within his own household. But all of this leads Hagar to respond in verse 13. So there's a response from Hagar and some final notes, and then we'll end this text. Verse 13, so she called the name of the Lord, called on the name of the Lord, who spoke to her. She, you are a God of seeing, she said. For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, which Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So we come to verses 13 through 16. We see this final response of Hagar. Not only has God heard her cries, he sees her. She uses the phrase, perhaps you've heard preaching on the names of God, the Old Testament names of God. This is El Roy, the God who sees. In the angel of the Lord, she has seen the one who sees her. In her greatest moment of distress, she has come to know God in a closer, deeper way. So Hagar names the well, literally it could be translated, I've seen the God who sees me. I've seen the God who sees me. We come to this part of the story and we consider how God ministers to Hagar. I couldn't help but think of a testimony that I heard from um, my professor and my PhD doctoral advisor. His name is Dr. Brian Rossner. Dr. Rossner has become more than a scholar and advisor to me. He's become a friend. Uh, I have communicated with him now from a distance. He lives in Australia, so it's kind of hard on our friendship. Uh, but I, I see him about once a year and have the opportunity to talk with him. And I, uh, he on, on occasion, he has uh, conveyed to me his own personal story and testimony. Dr. Rossner is, sits in the chair of Leon Morris at Ridley College in Melbourne, Australia. But years ago, just after he had finished his own PhD, his wife left him. She abandoned him for uh, another man completely neglected him, left him with the children. Dr. Rossner describes how difficult that experience was for him. He was at the depths. He didn't know what to do. He felt completely in distress and affliction. He said, Brent, you know, there's the book by J.I. Packer called Knowing God. That's a profound thought that believers can have the opportunity to know God in real ways. He said, but God led me as a result of this experience in my life to write a different book. The book that you could see that he's written is entitled Known by God. He said throughout that time, the scriptural, uh, the scriptural teaching that was the nearest and dearest to me that brought me through it was the concept, not that I could know him, but that he knows me. That he knows me as an individual, as a person. Hagar learns that God sees and he hears her even when she's in the wilderness all by herself. Now, as we close, I want to make some final applications to you from these main characters. I, I've got about three or four more minutes. Hang on. And these applications, I think, should, uh, by God's grace, be very helpful to you. I want to make a, an application for the lives of each, each character in this story. Hagar, Sarai, Abram, and then the divine character, God. 
First, as we consider the human characters, we start with Hagar. Hagar is the one in the story who's least to blame. She's victimized and harassed in the story and neglected. Her only possible failure is looking contemptuously at Sarai. Yet to this battered woman, God appears. The interesting things to me as I did, did study outside of this text and look at bigger texts is Hagar is the first woman to whom God appears in the Bible. And she's the first woman that has an angel announce to her the birth of her son. Now, years later, we will find another woman to whom an angel appears to announce the birth of a son. That is found in the first pages of your New Testament. That is Mary, the mother of Jesus. What good company Hagar keeps, right? She was the object of God's grace and kindness and care. God made an appearance to her. The grace that demonstrates his concern. Men and women, we can all count on God to hear us and to see us in our distress too. But then I want to move on to Sarai. Sarai sins frequently in this passage. She acts in the flesh to get her own way. She then treats Hagar harshly. I come through this text, I can't help but leave very disappointed in Sarai. Yet as I keep reading in my Bible, many years later, the inspired biblical authors have different words for us to hear about Sarai. You see, all of her sin does not stop God from making something out of Sarai. I want you to listen to what two New Testament authors have to say about Sarah later on in her story. So I first read to you 1 Peter 3, verse 5. It says, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abram, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. You see, Sarah, later on, by the grace of God, becomes as an example of submission and of godly behavior that Peter lifts up to the, the, the women that he was writing to in 1 Peter. Think also the words of the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 11 and verse 11. It says, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age. Listen to this part. Because she considered him faithful who had promised. Men and women, Sarah becomes an example later on of a woman who trusts that God can faithfully fulfill his promise. Can't help but, you know, leave Genesis 16 and go to these New Testament texts and think, what grace. What grace. Sarah was a miserable failure in the text. And God makes an example of her of godly behavior. Isn't that amazing? And then Abram. What about Abram? Abram lacks the faith to lead Sarah to wait on God's fulfillment of the promises. Abram breaks away from God's ideal regarding marriage, which opens the door to years of family strife. Abram fails to protect Hagar or to intervene when she's being treated harshly. What a sinful failure. Yet that's not the end of his story either. The New Testament authors reveal what God eventually makes out of him as well. 
I think, for instance, the, the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 4, Abram becomes a man of faith in whose footsteps all who come to faith in Jesus Christ will follow. You will follow him. I think of the book of Galatians, which makes much out of Abram. and says he is a man of faith. He is a believer. I think of Hebrews chapter 11, which gives one of the longest sections in the hall of faith to Abram. It's like this, you know, you think, is this the same Abram? But Abram, so the author of Hebrews says things like this. He was looking forward to a city who had, uh, that had foundations whose designer and builder is God. What we learn about Abram and all these characters uh, uh, are that their failures weren't the final word, but God's grace was. These human characters reveal to us, I think, the great depths of depravity of human hearts. Now, as I read this story, it's a sad, twisted story, as I told you. These people are filled with sinfulness and self-centeredness and wickedness, yet I think we need to be careful as we read this text. It'd be very easy for us to sit in judgment on these people and say, oh, man, just this Abram guy, he's just terrible. We need to recognize that this is what lies dormant in each one of our hearts as well. When we consider these people, let's not deceive ourselves about our own hearts and our own lies and our own schemes. I think of Paul's words in Romans chapter 3 that, des that describe the sinfulness of every human heart. He says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together we have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Our throat is an open grave. We use our tongues to deceive. The venom is of asp is under our lips. Our mouth is full of curses and bitternesses. Our feet are swift to shed blood. In our path lies ruin and misery and the way of peace. We have not known. There's no fear of God before our eyes. When we come to these texts, we all need to recognize that we're filled with the same sorts of sin and devices as these characters we read. Be not deceived, men and women. The heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? Who can know it? But the end of their stories reveals the grace of God. Look what God can do with sinful men and women. And that leads us to two final lessons about God. These are quick. From Genesis chapter 16, I think first we can learn that God's word can be trusted. Don't resort to your own plans or your own thinking. Trust in what God has given to you in the word. Don't repeat the sin of the garden. That's God said. Don't doubt God's word. Don't doubt him like Abram and Sarai, who had promised a son. They doubted. Instead, base what you do and think on the word, the word of God. It will not fail you. It will hold true. And so we can know this. God's word can be trusted. We can also learn this about God. God cares for us in our affliction. From the way he treats Hagar in the story, he sees and he hears. God will not fail us. We can trust what he's doing. We can know that the judge of the whole earth will do what is right. Even when we are in the wilderness and have no idea where we are going, God knows and he will provide for us. I gladly lift up him before you today. 
He is the one that will make all things new for you. He comes and he cares for you in your distress. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. We close our reflection on Genesis 16. I hope this story has been a challenge to you. I hope that as you consider the sinfulness of human beings, you recognize the own potential in your own heart. We're sinners through and through, but I'm so glad that for those of us who are in Jesus Christ, our story is not complete. The end is not written. God sees us in Jesus, and he's changing us to look more like him. Father, as I come before you today in this field, I want to thank you that our failures are not the final word because we are accepted in Jesus Christ. And I thank you that you are still writing our stories and are changing us to be more like Jesus. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us. Help us in our trials and our difficulties to trust you, to do what your word says, and to know that you see and hear us in your goodness. Thank you for this timely word from the book of Genesis that addresses our lives. Give us grace and confidence to trust what the word says to us today. In Jesus' name, amen.